Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland, and uh, joined by the panel, as always, tonight we have Jim Reed, John Somsky, Rob Washam, and Chris Jones, uh, who are part of this uh, community of Rec Poker, this growing community, and we're excited that you have joined us for another episode. Uh, for those of you who are tuning in to hear Maria Ho, uh, she unfortunately had to reschedule. Uh, so right now we're planning on chatting with her on December 16th. Uh, so tonight we're going to do another edition of Listener Questions, which is something we're trying to do more of, where we get questions from you guys, the listeners, uh, what's on your mind, what strategy questions, what specific hands you want us to break down. And so we're doing another one of those. And uh, we're doing this again, uh, as we've just started doing as a Facebook Live simulcast. So that's uh, we, we do it live Monday evenings. Uh, and then we record it and put it out as a podcast as well. I want to thank our official sponsor of all things Rec Poker, uh, Running Aces, Racetrack and Casino. They've been with us from the beginning and planning on sticking with us till the end. Uh, and also thank you to Learn Pro Poker. They are also a sponsor of the podcast. This is Ryan LaPlante's uh, new training site, and we highly recommend it. Uh, and we have uh, an, uh, an affiliate relationship with them. So uh, if you want to check out Learn Pro Poker and support Rec Poker, uh, you can go to rec.poker uh, and you can go to our affiliate area and you can click on Learn Pro Poker and you can sign up there. Uh, and that'll help us out. It'll give you great content. And we actually are going to be using some of that content going forward uh, in some of our discussions. Running Aces Players of the Week. A uh, tie up top with a lot of points this week. Uh, 45 points is quite a few points. Uh, Brian Mori and Boomer Schumer. Uh, Boomer, way to go. Brian, way to go. They both had 45 points. Uh, so they're going to pick up a cool $225 bonus for that. $5 per point for the top four players. Third place was Charles Marcy with 32 points. And a tie in fourth place, Ike Thomas and now Yang with 26 points. Uh, I know now is, is also known as B, and him and I tangled quite a bit uh, recently. And so uh, very good players. Congratulations to all of you guys. And also one of the things that we're starting now as we continue to build our community is communicating with the broad Rec Poker audience who had a bink uh, in the last week. And going forward from this point, it's only going to be uh, folks who are actually members of the Rec Poker community, those of you who are paying the, the 10 bucks a month to be members, get all the content, be part of all the discussions, all of that. If you are a member and if you have a bink, in other words, if you have a win that you want us to share on the Rec Poker podcast, let us know and we'll share it. Uh, I just want to share a few of the recent binks that we had from people who are part of the broader Rec Poker Nation. Uh, those who are plugged in in any capacity who maybe put these out on their Discord Discord channel or or somewhere else. But Jake Mason turned 160 bucks into 1900 bucks at Diamond Joe's. Andrew Feist turned 75 into 600 at Survive and Thrive at Running Aces. David Bear and Michael Babker went first and second on November 14th, turning 50 bucks into 854 and 508, respectively. Rob Washam up at Grand Casino Malax turned 140 into 1300. Myself, I was able to turn 50 bucks into 918 on November 21st. David Bear, again, 40 bucks into 1293 on November 23rd. And just yesterday, Cheyenne Bhattacharya turned 50 bucks into 779 all at Running Aces. And so these are all wins among those who are part of Rec Poker Nation. So congratulations to all of those. A couple other announcements. I mentioned Maria Ho already. Ryan LaPlante from Learn Pro Poker is going to join us next Monday night. Next Wednesday night, December 4th at 6.30 p.m. Central, we're going to have our next hand history discussion led by Chris Jones. These are fantastic discussions that all of our members are welcome to join, and they'll also get a recording uh, of this, these hand histories. We learned so much through those conversations. And then also next Wednesday, December 4th, the first Wednesday of the month, is our Poker Stars home game. Uh, this will be our fourth one, and we're looking to crown another new champion. John Somsky won it last month, and we'll see if he can he can repeat. That starts at 8 o'clock p.m. Go to rec.poker, click on the home game. All the instructions are there. If you've never been on Poker Stars, uh, get out there because you need to get some points, so you need to kind of log in a couple times to get enough points to play that tournament. It's free of charge, but you need these, these play points in order to play. The NFL Survivor Pool is down to five people, and all five of them advanced this week. 
And then just a final reminder, go to Rec Doc Poker and connect with us however you see fit. We have a free Discord channel where you can chat and talk about hands and we can rail each other, encourage each other. We have the membership area. You've got the email list, Twitter, Facebook, all kinds of ways uh, that you can connect. So with that, let's move into our, our listener questions. Uh, the first one comes from David Baer, uh, the guy who just won two, two tournaments recently. And he had a question that he posted in Discord. And again, that's a free content area that you can uh, be a part of for free and, uh, and be part of these conversations and learn quite a bit through these conversations and ask questions. But David uh, had a spot. He was in a $50 weekly tournament at Running Aces. And there are 10 minutes left until the first break. And that's when the rebuy deadline uh, occurs. So you could rebuy up until that first break. There's still 10 minutes left. He was in the big blind. He had 25 big blinds or 10,000 chips, which is the starting stack because the blinds are at 400. So he had 25 big blinds and he had ace king suited. So a monster hand, but a ton of action in front of him. So under the gun was an unknown young kid who was new to the table and he went all in for 10 big blinds. So David had 10,000 chips. This kid went all in for about 4,000 chips. Then in the low jack, sort of a late middle position, an older gentleman who David had played with before, who's fairly tight, a passive player generally, re-raises all in for his 30 big blinds. Um, so he had about 12,000 chips he ships in for. And then even more action on the button, a relatively loose player also goes all in for a little bit less, 25 big blinds. And so David's asking, you know, I wake up with ace-king suited, but there's three all-ins in front of me from under the gun, low jack, and button. What is my play? And before we open it up to the, to the panel, uh, here's a few comments from Discord. This was David's, uh, what he did in his thinking. David said, I chose to fold, which felt really tight. But I think the low jacks range is heavily skewed toward high pocket pairs, pocket jacks and higher. And the other two are probably sharing some of my outs. At the time, I felt like I was at a pretty passive table that I could fairly easily chip up at by stealing blinds, etc. So I decided to take the lower variance line since I felt like I had a decent skill edge at this table. Although I think everyone, myself included, has an exaggerated view of their own skill. Uh, and I love how he said that. A few other comments uh, from Discord. One person said, I don't mind this fold at all. With the number of players already committed, not only are you sharing outs, but your hand equity goes down as well. I would wait for a better spot. Somebody else said, easy fold. In a bigger tourney, I might call it off. Someone else, in my opinion, it's just a risk tolerance play. In a large field tourney, I'd be more inclined to take this variance play, but in a smaller field tourney, tourney, I might just fold. I put in some guesses at ranges, and under my guess, you have 24 to 27% equity in a four-way pot here. So you're not really winning money by calling, and you're not really losing money by folding. Another comment. I think you are giving your villains way too strong of ranges in a $50 MTT. It's an easy ship. If we can have almost 100 big blinds in a turbo around first break, it gives us a massive advantage over our opponents. I'm thrilled to get my stack in this spot. This is honestly a spot we should be dreaming of to chip up early in a tournament. So there it is. So with, with all of those thoughts, I want to open it up to the panel. What are your thoughts uh, for David in this situation? Comments was mine. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get permission on everybody's comments, so I didn't want to assign them to people. And I, I, I agree with the fold at this point. Um, you know, you talk about sharing outs, and you might not even be sharing outs, but you could be up against um, three pairs. You know, you could be up, you know, the older gentleman, the low jack, probably has some sort of pair like he was thinking, jacks plus. Um, the big blind or the un, the under the gun, he's new to the table. He's only got ten big blinds, so he he could be really wide. Um, but then the button, he's got the same stack you have. He sees two players go all in in front of him, and he still shoves the rest. Of, he shoves all his chips. So you know he's going to have probably a pocket pair of eights, nines, tens at the very minimum. So. I think it's a coin flip at best, and uh, with that many hands you're up against, it really dilutes your equity. 
Yeah, I also think the guy that has the widest range here is the under the gun shover with 10 big blinds. And uh, he, you're only up against him for your first 10 big blinds and the, the rest of your stack, which is, mo- which is more than that of your chips, are up against these tighter uh, ranges that I think you're just not doing well enough ahead. It feels like a very nitty fold, but especially if you feel like you've got a chance to pick up some better spots later in the tournament, I think it's just one of those where it's a, it's a fold to me. Yeah, in, in my mind, I'm, I'm probably leaning towards a fold as well, but just to play a little bit of devil's advocate, the $50 tournaments do have a really fast blind structure. You're already down to 25 bigs, and after the break, uh, you're going to probably be at 20, depending upon where you're, uh, how the blinds are moving up. So the fact that it's a fast blind structure and you're already relatively low increases the amount that I would want to call. Um, I think there's still too much action here, particularly someone calling for 25 big blinds after a 30 big blind push represents quite a bit of strength. This is a $50 tournament, so you know it could be a jackpot play, but I could easily see someone else having an ace-king or at least your ace outs being greatly diminished. So I don't mind the fold at all. If you really want to try to win it, and you're still in the rebuy period and you really feel like gambling, fine. Go ahead and uh, call. I don't totally hate it, but I think the better EV play is to fold. I'm, I'm going to probably take the counterpoint here. Um, and that is, first of all, I think we're, when we get to a tournament like this, I think we have to, um, especially this kind of, we have to decide going in or at least uh, based on turnout if we're going to, if we're willing to rebuy. I mean, that's something I think you have to consider before any tournament that you enter, you know, what's the number of entries, what's the prize pool in which I'm going to be willing to rebuy. Am I ever willing to rebuy? Um, And if we are in this tournament um, and then, then I think this might be a a point where we take a, a stand. And the reason I'm thinking that is, uh, when we say things like we have a skill edge or I've got, I felt like I had a skill edge at the table, I think we have to be more specific um, and uh, ask ourselves some questions about what we mean by that. Um, I think there's different skill edges we can have. Um, and some people will feel very comfortable uh, having a skill edge in that they can take a small stack and they have a skill edge running with a, a 20 big blind stack and like they're not going to you know, cough it up for nothing versus some people might have a skill edge when they're deeper stacked. Um, and they're able to say, you know, with an 80 or 90 big blind stack, uh, I have a massive skill advantage over other people at the table versus when we're all around that 20 big blind kind of area. And for me, um, I feel like if I can rebuy and have basically the same stack, if I'm willing to rebuy, I can come back and have the same stack that I currently have, uh, or I can come walk away from this situation 25 to 27% of the time with like a 85, 90 big blind stack um, in this kind of tournament with this turbo of a structure, I feel like I have a much better chance of winning the tournament. And as we all know, this kind of tournament is the one where, um, you're you're going to make your money at the top, um, and I I think this might be worth taking that chance. Yeah, that that's kind of where I landed too, Chris. I mean, I, I had the same sort of thought that I put on Discord. Like, you know, what is what is the skill edge? Like, like because I know David is a really really good player, and I think you know him having eighty five or ninety big blinds is a huge huge advantage. And I didn't actually run like ICM numbers, you know, so early in the tournament to really do that, but like. You know, so three quarters of the time, you're going to have zero value left in the tournament. And then one quarter of the time, you're going to have, I don't know, how, how much value do you have in the tournament by quadrupling up or whatever uh, at that point in the tournament. I think, I think it's a pretty, it, I think it's an interesting spot. I think for me, it would come down to, you know, the, that low jack player, uh, is that range accurate? Is it really just jacks or better? Um, you know, if that's really accurate, then it's kind of a tough thing. But if, if you can imagine scenarios where he would do that with ace queen or ace jack, especially, you know, if he's a good enough player where he knows that the under the gun, you know, young kid might be more aggressive and ace queen or ace jack, he might be trying to isolate that. You know, if I think if, if the range is expanded a bit to something like pocket eights are better, ace jack, maybe even king queen, 
then I think it's a, I'm, I'm, you know, sort of the fist pump, get it all in with Ace King and just hope. I know the button still calls there. Uh, I realize that, but at least there you kind of move your equity gauge a little bit. I, I think that's it. I think the, uh, for me, it's, you know, when you have, when you're in that sort of expansionary stage of that tournament, that, that phase two of the tournament, and if I, you can give me, you know, 80 or 90 big blinds when everybody else is sitting there at 20 or 30, uh, I feel really good about my chance, and I think David would as well. So it might be a risk worth taking. That's where the numbers uh, it could be a little bit skewed. So from a pure EV perspective, it seems like a wash. But if you those, those 25% of the time that you do win, I think it's more than uh, that much value in, in actual tournament value, I guess. Now, I did run this through uh, Equilab, and yeah. I gave under the gun a standard push-fold 10 big blind uh, shoving range. And I give the low jack, uh, jacks plus ace king and ace queen suited. So he's got ace queen suited. And I gave the uh, button tens plus ace king and ace queen suited, which is probably tighter than he actually would call. But there are some non-ace king, non-pair hands in there. Mm-hmm. And that gave me uh, the hero's equity is 21.34. Yeah. And that's, again, that's assuming that you're getting your full stack against that under the gun player with the wider range. And the worst part about it is that it's 21.34 and 5.45% of that is tie equity. Mm. So you're only actually winning outright 15, 16% of the time. And the rest of the time you're chopping with one of these guys. Um, so you'd have to, you'd have to, I mean, it's, that stuff's only as good as the assumptions you make about the ranges, but right. you, I found you had to loosen up their ranges pretty wide, especially the guy under the button who's just calling. Right. Uh, in order to make it a, an EV, a plus EV call. Well, I, mean, I, I think at this point of the, the tournament, uh, uh, I mean, just another point is we're early enough on that the ICM implications should be negligible. Yeah. So you're really just the uh, Equilab calculations that Jim made or whatever Equilab calculation you come up with based upon your assumptions are what you need to go with because it's really just chip EV at this point. Yeah, I, I agree with that. The fact that the pure, you know, EV is just a chip EV. I think for me, it's that where it, where it moves in, in the direction is maybe what Chris is getting at too, is the skill edge of playing with a big, a big stack. So, you know, the opportunity to chip up even more, you know, as people are starting to shove in on the, you know, before the rebuy or after the rebuy, when people have 10 big blinds, the opportunity to sort of, you know, take that stack and, and turn it into something more. Um, it doesn't really factor into an ICM calculation, but I feel like it's, um, it's, it's a factor if you feel like you're good at playing a big stack in those tournaments. And I should say when I did widen the ranges, uh, in Equilab, um, and gave the low jack and the button more like a 10 to 12% range there, uh, we actually improved to about 27% equity with only 3% tie equities. So that would make it again, depending on how you crunch the numbers on the, on the stack sizes, uh, that would make it much closer to, uh, at least neutral or my uh, slightly positive EV call. Is it easy in that tool? Uh, I'm I'm kind of ignorant with that tool to to like easily take out one player at a time. Like I think this would be a good learning thing for me, but also for all of us to be like, what if what if that button wasn't in there? What if that person wasn't in there at all? What does our equity look like? What if what if it was just the under the gun player? Can you kind of like remove them one at a time and give us an idea of how the equity changes as more people are getting into the pot? You can. It's actually really easy to do it um, in the tool menu. And you can also set up the ranges that you think are in play and the amount of equity you'd need to call and then have it calculate a calling range. And it'll tell you what hands are in that range. So I did run that for this. Nope. And in the in the very tight um, ranges that we described, you're only getting the appropriate uh, uh, equity when you call with Queens Plus. And um, as you widen the ranges, you get to tens plus ace king, ace queen suited. Um, so you can, and I, I was thinking I might uh, post a link up in the show notes or something to a little video going through that aspect of the Equilabs mm-hmm. features because it's a great program. So what if what if, what do you think? What's your gut? I know you probably don't have it up right now, but like if the button wasn't in there, say it was just the the under the gun ten big blind shove and the low jack reshoves for thirty. You know, without the button in there, is this become an, a much easier decision? Or, you know, how much difference does that third player make? I didn't run for that in the yeah. program, but my gut tells me that the the low jack's actually the tightest range here. So uh, 
as long as he's the one that you're going stack to stack with, with your entire stack, then Ace King is probably just worse the tighter his range is. And I'm not sure. Hmm. Uh, it, I mean, it's probably better just because. Right. You're getting less, but you're getting less, less. Uh, but chips yes, also. exactly. 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 So you think this is pretty close to a fold, even if it's just the low jack reship. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it. Feel, just anecdotally, I've been in tournaments where I've been in this spot and looked down at Ace King, and usually when I've called, I've lost. <laughs> so I don't know if that I don't know if that factors in. But you've been um, talking to George Sanford, I see. <laughs> there you go. Yes, exactly. So it's uh, so I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure, but okay. I think this is the, the, it's the low jack guy that in a way you're most concerned about because he's been described as being older, passive and tight. Right. So when they overshove, it's not usually balanced or with a, with yeah. a, uh, much in the middle of his range. It's usually just the top. I think. Chris, what was your thought there? Well, I, I, what, what do we, I mean, like, I guess I wasn't there and I don't know what this low jack is, but my gut tells me that, or I might, my, my, it, experience tells me too that that this low jack i think we're tightening this low jack too much i mean i know that the that the description was they're just jacks plus but i mean what is this player going to do with 30 big blinds when this the under the gun raises to 10 right. big blinds and they're sitting there with tens or are they 10. just are they just going to open fold are they calling are they calling a 10 big blind shove and just hoping that everyone folds behind them i that and that's all ultimately why I also think this is this I think we're um the button actually makes me more worried than the low jack um when somebody comes over the uh, calls all in or goes over all in behind that low jack that's a range I give a lot of credit to even from a relatively loose player but I'm still thinking they might be coming in with that range we were talking about of ace queen, maybe probably ace queen suited, but uh, and probably tens plus. Um, but I still think we've got a lot of equity here, and we're in the rebuy period. Um, and I'm taking my shot here, and I, I feel because I feel like we have that 25 to 27 percent equity. I'm, I'm I just don't think that people are as tight as. Um, when they're in this kind of tournament, when it's this quick of blinds, when you're, you know, you've, you started with a hundred big blind stack and four levels later, you're, you're down to 20 to 25 big blinds. I think people are starting to feel that urgency. Um, and being greatly diminished. Yeah. So I don't mind the fold at all. If. <laughs> John, did you have something else there? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, um, I, I agreed with, Chris's uh, calculation, when someone shoves over a shover, it's often to isolate. And I often see that that represents a weaker hand. Like someone with aces may not shove there in hoping to get some more, because the most they can win then is 10 big blinds. Whereas someone with aces might try to get a few more big blinds from someone else. So do either a smaller raise to try to entice a call and just one call. I mean, you don't want a cascade of callers or if he's in relatively late position, which he is in the low Jack, go ahead and call and hope that one other person comes in so you can get a little bit more equity post flop. Um, And I agree with Chris also that the button, someone cold calling, a second all-in just screams strength. Now that is, you have to take into account that it is a relatively loose player, and you have to take into account that it's a $50 tournament, which means you can have very erratic play um, compared to the higher level tournaments. But I still tend to agree with Chris's analysis. Yeah, I, I think so too. I think, you know, the $50 plus, you know, you're getting close to the rebuy deadline. If this was with like, two minutes left before the rebuy, then I would probably for sure get it in because uh, people just are going crazy then. But, you know, I, I think in the 50, it's not even, to me, it's not even so much the structure as much as it is that 
the, the lesser experienced people that play the fifties often are overvaluing hands so much. Uh, they think Ace Jack is a monster. They think King Queen is a monster. And it doesn't matter what position they're in. It doesn't matter what the action is in front of them. I've got Ace Jack. You know, I've got Ace Queen. So that's that's another just consideration. So I think for me, you know, based on the ranges that David was assuming, I think you guys have convinced me that maybe folding is the right play. But I think maybe the question is what maybe what Chris is doing, maybe John is too a little bit, is just sort of challenging the ranges. Are the ranges that we've given them a little too tight, at least for the low jack? Yep. Certainly the the rebuy factor does change things. And not only because you don't have to drive home and come back next week to play, but because everyone else is also going to be shoving late. And so that really does change the ranges. And uh, if you, the, the other thing that might, it, he mentions that he doesn't know the unknown young kid under the gun, but the low jack might know him. And if he hmm. thinks that he's the kind of guy that shoves a short stack light, then that makes his shove much weaker and that makes everybody's range wider. And it makes it, I think in that case, a clear call. Um, so uh, yeah, it, it, I haven't played this tournament, um, but if there's rebuys through the first break, I can see that being a reason to get it in with ACE King, even, even in the, in these circumstances. Yeah. Rob. Yeah. I think uh, John made some excellent points. I was going to, I was going to mention also. Under the gun shifts for 10 big blinds, a low jack, he could have a pretty, a lot wider range and be isolating. That's why he goes all in, right? I mean, how, how often have you done that yourself? Oh, yeah. If, I've got ace, if I think they're wide and they've got, I've got ace 10, I might just rip it there in this tournament. That's what, exactly the yeah. hand I was thinking is ace 10 is, is in his range. And you've got that crushed. Um, the, but, the button is the guy we have to worry about. But then what Jim just said, you know, the rebuy period is coming up. This guy is a relatively loose player. You know, he's got 25. He's got the same stack. He could go get it all in and uh, gamble it up a little bit. And if he doesn't hit, he can go and rebuy and have the same stack he has right now. So that could widen his range. And all of a sudden now we have a call. <laughs> yeah it's come full circle well, i mean i yeah. you know and i don't know this player either this 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 button player but uh and they've got a full stack they got 25 bigs they got a full stack so i see this more with like that five to six thousand chips where people don't realize they still have equity in the tournament so they just kind of pumped it away but like i've seen it many times where there's like three all-ins right before the deadline and somebody has pocket threes they're like well whatever you know they, they just get it in but, you know it's just what they do because you know who knows maybe i'll hit maybe i won't maybe i'm good maybe i don't care maybe i want to rebuy you know it's just sort of a you, you see that a lot and i'm not saying that this person did that but it does happen a fair amount where even in those spots where it's not like there's open shoving they're just like calling off you know three shoves with with pocket threes uh so that is an interesting dynamic again i think it's still they probably had a little too many chips for that and it's still a little bit too much before the rebuy deadline you see that with like two or three minutes left more often uh, which is sort of funny but um, yeah, I don't know. The, the ranges can open up there for sure. John? I was just going to ask uh, a question. If this were a $150 tournament and it were after the rebuy period, then what are your thoughts? <laughs> then do you think it becomes a clear fold or do you, is it still a borderline call for you? You know, I, yeah, for, I don't know if, who you is. I'll, I'll take a shot at it, but it's still, I still am probably going to get it in here. Uh, I would in this spot, and I probably would in the 150, I think. Um, I I just tend to think people are doing things wider than they probably are. Uh, I just think there's a lot of ace-queen, a lot of ace-jack, king-queen even. And I'm in the stage of the tournament where uh, it's a little early to be saying, oh, I'm going to play for the win. Uh, but, you know, I just know if I can in that phase two of the tournament you know, before we start getting close to the bubble, if I can chip up, I just know, uh, you know, what I what what I can do with that stack against people on the bubble, and how I can consolidate more, and I'm willing to go broke three out of four times. I, I don't. That sounds a little that sounds a little harsh, but I'm willing to go broke you know, two out of three times, hoping I have more equity than I do probably. Um, you know, for that chance at really, you know, getting a stack where I can actually make a deep run. But I'm I'm second guessing a lot of that with some of the discussion for here. For me, as as you move up in stakes, and once we're past the rebuy thing, that's a big consideration. Past the rebuy thing, and then to me, the the button is the biggest question. Um, if I've moved up now in stakes, and I think this button is a is a you know a competent player, 
uh, who is not going to be doing this just wildly, I then I'm more closer to a fold um, because that that range from a, a you know a competent player. It's got to be. I mean, you're gonna have to show your hand, so it's got to have to have a decent amount of strength. Um, and you know, I that that's the that's the range with that I'm that I'm probably folding um, once we're past the rebuy period. What what is your range there, Chris? I mean, maybe you don't want to say exactly, but I'm, you know, you say a competent player. Like, what what is the buttons range here? Like, if we think this through, maybe if, even take it to your example of of. Whoever brought that up, it's a hundred fifty dollar tournament. We're past the rebuy deadline. What is what is a button flat here? Just you know, calling all in. What is it? What is a range there? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I so I'm as the button in this uh, position with these as described. These two players, a ten big blind sort of unknown kid and a passive older, uh, fairly tight player. I'm. I'm not doing this with anything less than Jax is the big question. I'm, I'm definitely doing Queens plus I'm doing it. Ace Kings suited, probably Ace King. Um, but not much lower than that. Yeah, I agree with you there, Chris, that that would be my range for doing what the button does there. It'd be Ace King is the lowest unpaired hand. I would go and, Jax is kind of on the the bubble for me, whether or not I'd call. It would depend upon my read or or how I felt that day. Also, I think Ace-King is a lot better. Well, I don't know if this is true. I haven't done the math on this. But Ace-King is better three-handed than four-handed because you've got – at this point, when people are all in pre-flop with over 20 big blinds, most of those hands are going to be paired hands and Ace-X hands. And so the more of them there are, yeah, you're dominating more of them that have aces, but all it takes is if three of you have aces and one of them has a single pair, there's only one ace left in the deck. And if it doesn't come, you you all lose. So um, once you get this many players all going all in and you know that most of their hands are going to be pairs and ace-x, then uh, it's just not as valuable because all it takes is those pocket threes that came in on the button, you know, if everyone else is sharing the aces, guess who's not going home on that. That's right. So, so, okay. So let's say, let's say we, we don't know the under the gun. We're assuming they're fairly wide with 10 bigs, the low Jack, you know, we're, we're giving them credit for a decent, decent hand here, but we're going to give them some, they could be isolating here. So they're a little bit wider maybe than what, you know, the initial assumption was, but we think the button is Jacks are better in ace king. So, so what hands, so if we don't like ace king in that spot, then what hands are we then calling with? Is it just kings and aces? Is that, is that all we have left to call with here? I mean, once you knock ace king out of it, uh, you're down to paired hands and I wouldn't want to get in there with tens or, you know, jacks. No, (laughs) I don't think that. No, I mean, it's, it's just the best possible hands. Yeah. Yeah, in the big turkey tournament, I was in a hand kind of sort of similar to this. And it was a three-way all-in, and it was aces, kings, and queens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I, I know that result. Uh, okay. Not, not to mention that it only takes, you know, only only takes one of those guys with aces or kings to really right. chop your odds there quite a bit. And uh, especially... Again, it depends on this button range, but uh, you know he really shouldn't be in there with many hands that aren't aces, kings, or ace king. And against that, you're you're crushed. Hmm. John, did you have something else there? Nope, that was uh, pretty much. Well, I did want to make one other point. Even though the button is supposedly relatively loose, right. most maniacs are loose and aggressive when right. they are raising. They aren't aggressively calling or loosely calling uh as much so it depends upon the player and maybe this player is just a really loose caller but most loose players are not necessarily all that loose in just calling especially in a multi-way pot yeah that's that's a great point because the the maniacs are trying to get you to fold i mean that's what maniacs love and so they're they want fold equity and you have none here so this this is a real strong play 
Yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm horrible at like physical reads. I'm really not good at it at all. Uh, so, but once in a while in these $50 tournaments, what the button player will do here is go like, eh, whatever, it's a rebuy, and they'll put their chips in. Then I feel a little better about my ace-king. But yeah, if it's, you know what I mean? Like, sometimes they just tell you what they have. Um, then I feel a little bit better. But yeah, if it's a, if it's a person who's, I think that's a really good point. Loose doesn't mean that they're calling everything off. Uh, usually what that means is they're trying to be aggressive with their, with their marginal hands. Well, anything else on this? I think this is a good, a good example to, to talk through. Anything else on this or we'll go to the next question, John. I was just going to say with all of the discussion and that we've had on both sides, I think what it comes down to then is it's a fairly close decision. So depending upon your comfort level and your read of the players, you could probably go either way in this exact situation. Yeah. And some kind of like Chris said too, you know, if you kind of come in with a idea of, am I going to rebuy or not? Kind of how am I going to approach this tournament in general? Yeah. Jim, did you have something there? I was just going to say that when in doubt, if, if it's a question of a, a call this close, go with your read. And if you get the sense that the tightest, the guy that's supposed to have the tightest range is actually just in there to gamble, then I would, I would follow that. You, you know, you're there, uh, David, you're there in the seat. You know these players better than, uh, well, maybe not better than these guys on the panel here. But uh, um, if you've got a read, use it as a tiebreaker in these very close places. All right, good stuff. Well, David, thank you for uh, for sending that question in. Uh, I don't know if this might have been the tournament he actually won. I'm not sure. So um, uh, he's he's a really good player. So thank you, David, for that. Uh, we got a few more minutes here, so we'll, we'll go through the next ones pretty quickly. Uh, this is just a question that came from FPN Colorado, who is that's the Free Poker Network. Uh, I think they're starting out some new leagues out there in Colorado. And the question that came was just generally, they were really just looking for just general thought process. And how do you know when your second pair of hands are good? Like just kind of, and I know this is a broad sweeping question, but uh, just struggling with that. And one of the examples, and I think this wasn't an actual hand, it's just something he, he made up to give us a flavor. But this situation here where you're, you know, under the gun plus one, you have pocket jacks, you open, it folds to the small blind who calls and a big blind calls. So you got pocket jacks, you're in position, both blinds call, flop comes king nine three rainbow. You have pocket jacks, you have second pair at that spot. Uh, check, check to you, you bet a third of the pot, both blinds call. The turn is a 10. Check, check to you, you bet three quarters pot. Small blind calls, big blind folds. River is a seven, and they lead out. I guess it would be the small blind leads out half pot. So this is just one example, but you can either talk about this specific example or just this general uh, idea of, you know, having these marginal hands. And I, I did comment out there. I know you guys are, are involved in the, the Andrew Brokus book a little bit about, you know, playing optimal poker and, you know, betting uh, more of a polarized range rather than your, your kind of your middling hands. But I'll just open it up and see, you know, who has a comment either on that hand or this, this general uh, idea of having sort of middle strength hands. First one to unmute gets it. Chris. So the two things I think about in this particular situation, but in kind of all of these situations is, is do we know anything about these players? Um, you know, some players will call very widely and speculatively from the small blind um, with suited connectors and all their pocket pairs and, um, uh, you know, all those kinds of things, which gives us a, a much wider range here versus some players who will raise a lot of hands from the small blind or fold and won't call much from the small blind. So when we have a small blind calling here, it's helpful to know sort of what situation we're in. But more broadly, when when I'm dealing with uh, these kinds of situations, and I think Andrew Brokus talks about this from dealing with a condensed range, is that we don't want to be we're not going to get three streets of value with our jacks when we have a, like a king show up on the flop. And so in this particular situation, I, I question why we're even betting on the turn. Um, and so because I think what we want to do with jacks is navigate towards showdown um, and hope that especially in position um, and and trying to to get there as easily as we can, and I think the the continuation bet is fine. But then I'm questioning why we're betting out onto that turn, which puts us into um, it. Basically, forces the small blind to fold out a lot of hands that we're beating, which we can then call um, on the river. Uh, and once and I did this through um, Flopzilla, and once once we reach this point on the river, we're in we're in real rough shape and um, 
so I, that would be my my starting point is uh, we we probably want to bet less. I actually think this is a great line with a hand uh, much weaker than Jack's yeah. because the small bet on the flop keeps them in the hand with all their junk. And then three quarter on the turn. I think one of the nice things about that is that you can actually, you've, you've now, when they call that, you've now successfully eliminated a bunch of their hands from the hand range. So what are the hands that are calling the turn, but not raising and not folding and then leading on uh, the river, uh, which is a brick. Well, it's not a straight brick, but it's bricky. Yeah. Um, <laughs> bricky. It's yeah. brick-like. It's brick-esque. Uh, so I think if you were on the turn here, I'd bet three-quarters pot with, uh, you know, six-four suited or something that's never going to uh, win anything otherwise. And once he's called, I think you, uh, you're you in a really, as he points out, you're in a really tough spot with your jacks here. Because uh, you're basically with a with a bluff catching on the river. There's no way he's betting for value on the river with worse than pocket jacks. He's not betting for value with ace ten there. So you do have to. At, I would be thinking at this point, out of the out of the hands that he called from the small blind, uh, how many is he bluffing with, and how many are kings or two pair or better that have me beat here and. Unless I know something about the opponent that's going to tell me he's more likely to bluff or more likely to bet for value, I would just treat it like a math question, as boring as that sounds. <laughs> John? I really like uh, everything that both Chris and Jim said. Um, I'm going to deviate from this exact hand, and I would say uh, the time that I get most concerned is when there's an ace. People love to play aces. So if I'm sitting with a hand like Jack's, that's when I become the most conservative. I still probably make the continuation bet. And if I'm in position like this, I can check the turn and then evaluate what I want to do on the river. Um, but it makes a, a good bluff catcher at that point, a great bluff catcher. Uh, and uh, you can get by with less than the, probably your river call will be less than your turn bet was in this particular case. Yeah, no, I think that's that's exactly right, Rob. Yeah, I think uh, the line is wrong. I think what they're what they're doing here is definitely wrong. Um, obviously, on the flop, you're the pre you're the pre flop aggressor. On the flop, you can bet your polarized range. It's a perfect flop for that. It's got that one high card and a couple of lower cards. Perfect flop for the continuation bet. But then on the once you get called by both of them on the turn, they, they both check. At that point, you need to check back. What you do by checking back is you keep both of their ranges really wide. You know, when, when, they, when you get one of them to call a bet, especially three-quarters of the pot, that just means their range just went way, way up. And you definitely will have to fold to a bet on the river. Um, whereas if you check that back, uh, and then face a bet on the river, first of all, like John said, you know, you're, you're, you're going to face a smaller bet than you bet out on the, on the turn probably. And you're going to be able to call that because he's going to be leading out with a much wider range, uh, because he checked on the turn and you, and he did not have to call a bet on the turn. So I think the line there is, yeah, you, you continuation bet on the flop. Check, check the turn and then call the river. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think I just did some quick math based on, you know, what, what they had said here. And basically, you know, you're facing on the river, you're facing a probably about a 12 and a half big blind bet if it's half pot. And so now you're making that call, you know, you're making a call uh, for about 23 big blinds for the total of the hand uh, versus if you can check back turn there, you're facing maybe a nine, you know, nine big blind um, well, it's like a five, it's five big blind bet on the river if it's half pot and like nine big blind total. And that feels like a more, uh, you know, valid sort of value of this hand, um, you know, at, at this stage of the tournament. So, yeah, I think, I think the checking back to me on the turn is huge. I think it does, like, like, Rob, like Rob said, it just opens up. Now they might think they can bet their 10 or bet their nine for value. You've given them an opportunity to bluff at it, um, that sort of thing. And to make a call is just far less painful you're calling, you know, five instead of 13 or whatever on the river. So 
I think that's the right play. And I think that that is the issue that a lot of people get into when they say the second pair of hands, how do we know if they're good? A lot of times you're trying to make a decision if they're good or not in a massive pot. And I think if you can practice a little pot control and you guys kind of alluded to it already, but um, you know, when you have one of those medium strength hands, like you're betting jacks here, you're only called by better and only worse hands are folding. I mean, that that's the exact opposite of what you want. If you're betting, I mean, the question is why are you betting on the turn? Why, you know, whenever you bet, you should be asking yourself, what am I trying to accomplish here? Well, if you're, if you're betting to try to get them to fold, then they're only going to fold worse hands. If you're betting because you think you have the best hand, they're only going to call with better hands. So it's just, you're just not really accomplishing that when you're, when you're betting for trying to get them to fold, you want them to fold better hands than yours. Well, they're not going to here. And if you're betting for value, you want them to call you with worse hands and they're not going to here. So um, I don't know if I even said all that right, <laughs> but I think you get my point. Um, so I think that's the question. That's where the stuff that we've been studying, this idea of when you have a medium strength hand, you really don't, there really is no big advantage for you to bet there. Uh, you're just not picking up value. You're only losing value on one side and you're not gaining any extra value on the other side. Uh, another way of, of looking at what you said, Steve, would be uh, on the turn, you're really turning your jacks into a bluff. And it seems like you're, it, yeah. it's, it's really, you know, like uh, Jim said, you know, uh, six deuce suited, it, you're getting almost the same value as you are betting your jacks there. It's too good of a hand to turn into a bluff there, in my opinion. Yep. Well said. And, and just to go back to like the, the kind of the overall is the, the thought process of determining when your second pair hands are actually good is sort of, I might even recommend trying to change the thinking there a little. And really what we're trying to do is the thought process for navigating our second pair hands, um, you know, in these types of situations, we're never going to actually know they're good. All we can know is what our second pair hands are compared to what our opponent's range might be. and you know, it might be right in the middle of there. And that means that we, what we need to do is pull back a little and try to navigate towards uh, getting to as cheaply as we can to a showdown um, because we still have a pretty strong hand and we can beat a lot of bluffs. Um, it's possible our opponent off of that in this example hand or other hands sort of like it, you know, there's a lot of people who are going to, um, stick around with a nine, stick around with a 10. Uh, they're going to stick around with some of their gut shots and those kinds of things. So there's a lot of hands which we're going to be ahead of that we can get to that river. And if they then lead out with that, we can call. And yeah, sometimes we win, sometimes we lose, but we haven't lost as much as if we're trying to like, you know, bet to see where we're at and figure out if we're actually good and all those kinds of things, which I think are not the best way to be thinking about hands like this. Good. Any other thoughts on, on that? I know it's a big topic, but any other thoughts to for FPN Colorado? Jim? I guess if we're just talking about things, factors to consider in moments like this, I would consider what what does the villain think of my image right now? Where do they think I am in my hand range? Like, is my actual hand in the top of my range or in the bottom of my range? Uh, I would be thinking about what kind of hands would they want me to fold on a board like this? Are there some really obvious candidates? If there aren't, that kind of weighs them towards value a bit. And probably most importantly would be, it, and Chris, I love that you started talking about working uh talked about starting to think about this in ranges is of the of the hands that he calls out of the small blind what are my cards blocking to make less likely um if i want to think about if my hand is good as a bluff catcher if it's blocking any nuts or premium hands then i'd rather call with a less valuable hand that blocks their value bets than with a uh, you know a medium strength hand that doesn't get in their way at all so those would be other things that i would think about Good stuff. All right, guys, let's go on to the on to the next one. Good, good stuff. FPN Colorado, let us know if uh, if we miss anything that you wanted to address. All right, so this is just um, an interesting one that we all deal with. Uh, some of you guys know Jefferson, really, really good dude. Uh, but he says, "All right, just curious." And we've talked about this a little bit. We've had uh, some some psychology experts on and stuff. But he just says, "Just curious how other players handle adversity, uh, specifically when you grind a tournament. You're playing really well, uh, and then blammo." 
you run your pocket queens into pocket kings and you bust a few people from the bubble. Obviously, we all know what that is. He says, you played great. You did nothing wrong, but you still deal with a teeth-natching cold deck. Teeth-natching cold deck. Uh, I can get over it relatively quick, but I still get emotional. How do others deal? Anybody want to tackle that one? I mean, it never feels any better. <laughs> you can you can develop strategies for how you're going to handle it internally. Um, and I think the strategies that are going to help you with that are going to help you with a lot of other things in your life too. This is just one of those perspective questions where it's, uh, uh, you're not entitled to win the tournament. You're not entitled to win when you have aces when you've played a million hands and you've seen aces lose so many times, it really helps. Uh, to, it just helps that you have to just sort of accept this was the time when I was supposed to leave this tournament and I'm going to take a lesson from this. Maybe I could have avoided running Queens into Kings. Like you say, you did nothing wrong, but I would say, you know, look, look, take this as an opportunity to look a little closer. And uh, maybe if you can find in the future, that same spot and you feel like you took some lesson from this, then that'll make it feel a little better next time. John. Well, I was just going to say the hand that I was talking about earlier, the aces, Kings and Queens. Now I'm going to turn it into a bad beat. <laughs> and I was the one with the aces. And of course the Queens ended up winning that hand. And, you know, it was, I was really hoping to do well. I only had time to play once. It's, on the larger side of buy-ins for what I play. Uh, so it was a painful tournament for me. And I've, I've been having a bad run lately. Uh, so that makes it more painful as well. And the way to get over it is just to remind yourself, you know, even with aces, you're supposed to lose some of the time. And uh, also try to notice the times when the shoe's on the other foot, the times when you have the queens and beat the aces and make a mental note of that. That really helps me out because then it says, you know, what comes around goes around and eventually you'll be on the other side of it. Eventually your aces will hold up and keep in mind that even for the best possible players, it takes a long time for to realize your true equity. There's a lot of variance in poker. And particularly when you're playing live poker, you're not seeing that many hands. I personally, on a good month, I'll get like four tournaments in. And in the grand scheme of things, that's nothing. So, you know, you just have to keep that in mind and come back to asking the question if you're really playing good poker. Because it is because variance is so high, it's really easy to fool yourself either way, to convince yourself that it's a good play when it's not, or it's a bad play when it is, because the cards don't always, uh, or the results don't always reflect the, the quality of the decision. Yeah, one thing, I mean, the, the you know, obviously these things just happen and you've got to kind of roll with them. But one thing that I, that has helped me in terms of dealing with, you know, situations that went wrong is not necessarily when you have Kings or Queens and you run into the, the Kings or you have Kings and you person with Queens spikes a queen, right? There's nothing, there's not, there isn't much you can do. You know, those are just going to play themselves. But, you know, the one thing about this statement, and I don't mean to call it the question, the questioner, but um, the thing that actually helps me deal with it is thinking about how I played the entire tournament. And I have never walked away from a tournament without feeling like there's a hand I could have learned something from. There's not uh, a situation that I could have, that I would have liked to have played a little differently. Um, so the idea that you played great and did nothing wrong might be one way to really start to think about this a little differently. Like, I think there is always something we can learn from tournaments. It might not be that big blammo bust out hand where we, we just got coolered on, on a, you know, an unfortunate run out, but there are situations where maybe, maybe we could have gotten to that situation and had more chips. Maybe we could have been in that situation and maybe that doesn't knock us out of the tournament. Maybe there, you know, there's all these different other choices we made, you know, 
three levels ago that we don't even remember because it was like the you know a king jack offsuit that we just maybe mangled the way we played it <laughs> and you know those are the kind of situations that i like to make sure that i'm trying to take notes on going back and looking at and focusing on rather than these sort of big dramatic oh i wish that i just wish that queen wouldn't have spiked on the river you know those are the ones you you can't control it and you can't change it but you can change the way you've played those other hands that you can learn something from rob yeah i think uh what chris said what john said what jim said all of it very very valid um, I used to get real, when I first started playing live, I would get very emotional. Not so much when I played online, I never ruined a mouse or a monitor or anything, <laughs> but, but I used to, you know, I used to get very emotional, um, because I didn't understand, um, some of the situations that I lost in. Right. So running your Queens into Kings, that's going to happen. That's just a, just a fact of life. What Chris said, very, very valid. <clears throat> I try to remember those times where I ran my uh, queens into kings and spiked the queen, you know, because that happened to get me to, you know, I don't think I've ever won a tournament or come into money in a tournament without having opposite variants, if you know what I mean. Having good variants coming my way to keep me in the tournament to get to that point. So you have to remember those types of things. And then another thing I've done in the last uh, about 10 years is I started meditating. Um, read Tommy Angelo. He's the, the premier meditation guy. But it really gives you more perspective. It allows you to uh, keep your emotions in check because there's times even during a tournament where you'll run into a bad beat, but you're still there. And you have to continue to play your best game. And if you get emotional about losing all those chips on that bad play that someone else made, um, it's just as bad as, as running your queens into kings and leaving the tournament. So um, meditation, keeping your cool, knowing that, you know, especially in a situation where you run your queens into kings, that just plays itself. It's not that you did something wrong. It's just that happens. Man, I can just reiterate everything you guys said is just so good. I think John was reading my mail. I mean, that's basically exactly how I replied, exactly kind of what you said. I'm supposed to lose some of these things. I'm a math guy, so I'm a I'm too logical by nature for my own good. Just ask my family. Like they wanna they wanna talk to me about something and I'll just kind of go into the logic phase and like, no, no, I just wanna be, I just wanna emote. I just wanna tell you, um, you know, and so I'm kind of logical to a fault a little bit. Like I I picture those spots. I just see a normal distribution and I know I'm okay. Two Sigma event. Let's move on with our day. Um, you know, so to me, that's a little bit easier. So some of this is just personality driven, but I do agree with what you guys said as far as, you know, remember those, those good times. I know that it's actually, they've done psychological studies on this, that good things that happen to us are like Teflon. We just forget them. And bad things that happen to us are like Velcro. They just stick. And so one of the things that I've learned in life, which I try to apply to the poker table is when you get that good, that positive variance that Rob is talking about, take seven seconds and just let it soak in. Like actually enjoy it. Like, like think to yourself, I got my ace queen and it gets ace king and I spiked a queen. Like let that sink in. Uh, you can remember it later, but it also just, you'll, you'll start to feel less bad about yourself because I think most people feel like they are unluckier than most. Like I talked to so many players that I, I swear they think they should win every tournament. If it wasn't for bad luck, they would win every tournament. Um, and I think they honestly believe that. And maybe I guess it's true. I don't know. Maybe they're just amazing. But I, I think we just all naturally think we're more unlucky than everybody else. And so when those positive variance things hit, I really do think just let that soak in, whether that's through meditation or whatever, or just in that moment, soak it up and just soak it up. And hopefully that'll carry you through. But I mean, you know, we're all we're all talking about how do you justify, how do you move th through those things? I mean, Chris's comment is so good. Like usually when my bust out Hand. I'm like, ah, crap, I ran tens into ace queen, whatever. He shouldn't have woke up with ace queen there in the big blind. But the reality is I got myself down to nine big blinds somehow. And I did that in a way that I could have avoided. And I wouldn't have had to shove my pocket tens. You know, I think there is at least not always, but at least a, a chance to look back and say, okay, what got me to that place where I was now susceptible to negative variance? Um, so I think those are all, this is a great conversation, great questions, great comments, Jim. Uh, I think the best thing that's been said on this, Chris, you're supposed to lose with aces. 
You are supposed yes. to lose with aces a certain percentage of the time. When you get in queens versus kings, you're supposed to hit a queen every once yep. in a while. Every once in a while, like that's what makes poker great. And uh, seeing both sides of it, knowing that it happens to you as, as often as it happens to everybody else, if you play enough hands, uh, then that has really helped me a lot. Practically speaking, I would say literally just stand up from the table. Don't say anything in the heat of the moment. Uh, go for a short walk around. If you're at home playing online, just step away from the computer. Go walk around the block. Take several deep breaths and just think about, uh, you know, what, what really is important. You're in a position to be playing poker. You've already won right. the life free roll. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, sure. uh, that, that just kind of helps. But yeah, take some deep breaths. Take a short walk and uh, move on to the next tournament. Yeah, I've said that if you're not if you're winning more than four out of five times when you get your aces in against kings, you're running really well, <laughs> right? You're supposed to lose one out of five. John, I was just going to mention. You know, you mentioned everyone thinks that they're the most unlucky player in the world, and that's only true for one of our listeners. Everyone else is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so chances are it's not you. <laughs> Love it. Jefferson, maybe it is Jefferson. I mean, we, we don't know. It could be Jefferson if it's one of those people. That's fine. That's a, that's a great point. Yeah. All right, guys, let's move on to the, the next. Let's see what we had here. Oh, that was all we had. Um, I don't know if anything pop up on Facebook or anything else that you guys want to add. Uh, you guys have anything else that you've seen pop up there at all? Uh, just on the last one, uh, we had a comment. Yes, I always get that you're just as that. I always get that you're just a lucky player. Never, oh, you played that very well. Hmm. Especially being a woman playing with mostly men. So what do you what do you take from that? I think people just blame a lot of stuff on luck. Yeah. Unless unless they win the tournament. Well, yeah, then it's all skill. <laughs> right. Every time you lose, it's bad luck. Every time you win, it's great skill. No, I, you know, we're, we're saying this sort of tongue-in-cheek, but, I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard it. I mean, just with the podcast, I mean, it's, it's, I hear that a lot, and people are sometimes saying it directly, sometimes they're saying it indirectly, but that is the implication, uh, is that if, if they win a tournament, they are a really, really good player, and if they lose a tournament, they were really, really unlucky. Um, now, maybe that could be true to some extent, but it, it's funny how it doesn't work both ways a lot of times. Chris? Yeah, I know. And I, I mean, I guess that gets to a broader sense of when, when you are running this bad, just, just, you know, just deal with it on your own and don't, you know, don't abuse the player who beat you. Don't abuse the dealer. Don't, I mean, just be an adult and be a mature person. Cause like we all, we all look at, we all have bad situations that come up and uh, it's, and actually to be honest, when the coin is flipped and somebody is sort of like saying, Oh, you, you donkey, you should have, you know, I'm sitting there stacking their chips. It actually uh, kind of, kind of makes me feel pretty good because I'm like, kind of like, but, but for the most part, I really feel like people just need to just take their, take their beats with, uh, with class and dignity. Nice. That's well said. And I do think there is, you know, personality does play a role. Some of us, I think are more predisposed to being able to handle that in one way and some, People are more emotional, so there's part of that. But I, I agree. Like, I just wonder what happens in like real life when, you know, somebody cuts in front of them on the highway. Are these the same people that are ready to pull out their shotgun? I mean, what you know, you just not. I mean, I'm I'm being somewhat serious. Like, what happens in real life when, you know, if there's a medical diagnosis or you know, uh, you know, they get they get laid off. I mean, all these things are horrible things that happen in life. That's why I think po poker is sort of a petri dish for life. And I think that it does give me some insight into people and how they're probably wired in their life if they can't handle, you know, busting a $30 tournament with, with dignity. Uh, but I feel bad for those people too, because if that's, if there's that much emotion inside of them, you know, so that much rage that's associated with that, I wonder, is this the right hobby sometimes, you know, John? Well, particularly since in tournament poker, um, everyone but one player in the tournament is a loser. Is eliminated. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I, you may still have won money, but, you're, you still didn't win as much as you could have, and you didn't finish in first place. And for me, that's always kind of my goal is to get to first place. But you just have to take it all in stride. I mean, I, I make a point whenever I bust out to 
wish everyone well at the table, wish them good luck and having a good game, and mention that I enjoyed playing with them. Um, and I think that's a good – it's as much for me as it is for them because it's to remind me. Mm-hmm. I went to play that tournament to enjoy myself. Yep. And part of it is the challenge of competition, and you're going to lose some time, and that's just all part of it, and you have to accept it all. And allowing you to handle those beats is one of the good side effects poker can have. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, and man, we could go on for hours about this. I love this because, you know, part of why I just play for, I play for fun, but I am competitive and I want to win, but I love, I mean, all of you guys included the relationships that I built through poker. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not the same person I was just because of the great relationships I built. And part of that comes from, I believe being able to handle negative variants at the table because that's attractive to people. You know, when you, when somebody busts you and you take it well, and you're just like, Hey, good luck with everything, you know, rest of the way. Oh, that's poker. Don't worry about it. That sort of stuff is really attractive to people. And I think people want to kind of hang out with you a little bit more. So even from a selfish relationship building perspective, uh, there's a lot of value in just being able to handle negative variants, even though, but, but just, I, I want to go on record as saying, but it really sucks. Like when you're in day two of a tournament and you get one outed, it really, really, really sucks. When you're in the main event and get one outed twice in three hands to lose your stack on day one, when you're playing it for the first time ever and it's your dream and it's over in a couple hours, it really sucks, you know, but, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, life is far bigger than, than that tournament. But I do want to admit that it does suck. <laughs> All right, well, guys, well, anything, any other comments there or we can wrap it up there. Everything good. All right, well, let's, let's wrap it up there. Just a couple of reminders. Thanks to you guys, Chris, Jim, Rob, John, everybody else online watching this thing on Facebook Live, who's listening to it on the podcast. Uh, next week, we are scheduled to have Ryan LaPlante, Learn Pro Poker, uh, formerly from Minnesota, bracelet winner, fantastic dude. I'm super excited uh, to actually do the interview with, with him and have the panel uh, chatting with him about what's going on in his world and get some insights into his poker strategy. Uh, but make sure you go to rec.poker. We're continuing to update the site. New stuff's going out there. A lot of cool stuff. So check that out. Uh, if you want to do us a personal favor, uh, wherever you're listening to this thing, it's iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, whatever, like us, rate us, review us. Those things are huge as far as helping get the word out about what we're doing and just let people know about this thing. We're super excited about it. We love uh, kind of the direction we've been going, the, these panels, the listener questions, building community. Uh, so let people know about this thing. We think it's a great tool to, to grow the game. Uh, and with that, just a final reminder, a special thank you to Running Aces Racetrack and Casino. They are our official sponsor of all things, Rec Poker and Learn Pro Poker, who is a sponsor of the podcast. So thanks to you guys. And with that, we will sign out and uh, we'll catch you next week. Take care, everybody.